The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, and welcome to all of you who are joining us this morning, both here in the sanctuary and all of you on live stream. It's great to be with you. I'm Carmen Barsotti, the worship associate, and I'm here with guest minister, Reverend Mary Gans, who many of you know. As we begin worship this morning, we also take a moment to acknowledge that our sanctuary and center are located within the occupied territories of the Muwekma Ohlone people, who are the original inhabitants of San Francisco. We acknowledge that we benefit from having our church building on these traditional Ohlone homelands. In affirmation of their sovereign rights as free peoples, Today's offering will be donated to the Segorate Land Trust, an urban indigenous woman-led group based here in the Bay Area that works to put land back into the ownership and care of the native people. May we be generous in our giving. I also give special welcome to all of you here at church to our musicians, Alex Tate, Miwa Steger, accompanist, and our song leader, Brielle Marina Nielsen, and also to Reiko Lane, our organist. To Jonathan, our AV and sound expert, Eric Shackelford and Shuli Young on cameras, to Joe Chapeau, who is monitoring our chat and can help you with any problems you have getting connected today to Thomas Brown, the sexton, who is on duty, to Athena Papadakis for the beautiful flowers that we have here decorating our space, to Alex Starr, Les James, and Tom Brookshire, who will be co hosting the coffee hour. And I'd encourage you, especially if you are with us for the first time, to download the order of service this morning so you can follow along. You can access it in the description of this video. It's posted in the chat, and it's also emailed to you if you get the newsletter. I also invite you to read the many invitations that are listed in the order of service and call special attention to three of them. This Friday, August 20th, you are invited to join in the viewing of the Sensible Cinema All In the fight for democracy. On Saturday the 21st, there is a pagan interest circle full moon ceremony. And also on Saturday, there's a young adult hangout online. And you can find more information in the service. And so let us begin. And we begin this service this morning by lighting a candle as we have each week since the stay-at-home orders have been in place. We light this candle in honor of all of you, bringing your spirits into this place until such time that we may all be together again. And let's sing together our opening hymn that can be found in your order of service. There's a correction in the number. It's number 153 if you have the gray hymnal and it also can be found in the order of service. Oh, I woke up this morning. 
Let us sing. Before we light our chalice, I want to make the congregation aware of the passing of a longtime member of this community. Dave Fafarman, husband of Melissa, father of Aaron and Ethan, died peacefully late Monday night. Dave was a scientist and a family man, an explorer and a photographer and his absence in the world will be deeply felt. As is our custom, we extinguish one of our chancel candles, representing that one of the lights of our community no longer burns among us. Please say with me now the words of our chalice lighting, which are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. 
as we move more deeply into our worship experience, we invite you to join in a sung meditation on breathing. The words are simple and they are in the order of service. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I invite you to join me in saying the words of our covenant that are found in the order of service. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first as we have since July of 2019 for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in detention camps for the mounting trauma to children separated from their families, for all people held without charges 
in less than transparent or humane circumstances. In this repeat of some of the most shameful chapters in our nation's and the world's history of xenophobia, racism, and greed. We ring the gong seven times for another week of days in which human dignity has been dismissed and for our responsibility for that as citizens of this country. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This last week, 66,981 people died of COVID-19 globally, 3,747 in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses, each one of those people precious and worthy of health and safety. And we hold with gratitude all who are working around the world to produce and distribute vaccines and all other efforts to support greater health, survival, and immunity from the virus. Finally, we ring our gong once for the people of Afghanistan, suffering from decades of war fueled by factions from within and by foreign involvements. We pray for safety, peace, and freedom for the children, women, and men of Afghanistan as we pray for our soldiers and their families whose lives were forever changed there. We are deeply remorseful for the way our country's politics added to the suffering in that region. We pray that all who wield power will learn from our mistakes. May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can. Please continue with me now in the spirit of deep stillness, known by many names, reflection, meditation, prayer. We pray for those from this community who are isolated still and again by the need to keep safe from the virus. We pray for those we know who are ailing, those tending loved ones who are ill, those who are grieving. We pray for the safety of dear ones who are traveling in perilous times. We pray for Reverend Vanessa, 
for Rohit and Lila, visiting Rohit's ailing mother in India. May they be safe. May their family be whole. May they be at peace in this tender time together. We pray for the forgotten people of San Francisco, for those who do not have safe places to sleep or enough food to eat. We pray for the faithful fools and for others who salve their loneliness with community. So many to remember across the world. So much to hold across history and in this moment, our hearts already breaking, some of us, from sorrows close to us. Sometimes we want to push it all away. We don't know how to fix it. We would fix it, all of it, if only we knew how. Sometimes we think that nothing we can do will make any difference at all, that nothing we can do will matter. May we hold fast to this article of our faith, that what we do in the world matters, that when we take our own halting steps toward the good, that matters, that we matter, each and all of us, more than we sometimes can grasp. May we know this too, our actions toward the good build on and with the actions of others. We are not alone. Let us rest in this knowing, in the silence of these moments, in the space that is sacred wherever you are, made sacred by your presence within it, a silent meditation. Amen. Sometimes I feel like
like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, and I'm Love. 
We are trapped in history. History is trapped in us, said James Baldwin. When Mary sent me the draft for the service, I was struck by the word trapped in the quote in this order of service. History being trapped in us. Is that a forever state or can we free it? I'm from Elk River, Minnesota. It's a city now, but when I was growing up, it was a small town of about 2,000 people, and I always felt like I was related to about half of them. My paternal grandparents, who were born in Hungary, came over as young children, and their families eventually settled in Minnesota, as did my mother's grandparents, who came over from Germany. They were all farmers. One of my favorite memories is going out into the woods where my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, first had a little house. We loved digging in the ground and finding the things that had been discarded and left behind when they had dragged the house from that spot out closer to the main county road. We loved living in the country where there was plenty of room to roam, where there was a hollow where we could play baseball with cousins and neighbors, where there was 80 acres of land where we would have hay rides with our youth group. When I was in high school, my parents bought a small cabin on Malax Lake, about an hour north of Elk River. We loved to go to the cabin and swim and fish, I learned to water ski. Also around the same lake is the Malax Indian Reservation, the land of the Ojibwe tribe. I knew little about what a reservation was or the history of the Ojibwe people or any native community. I only know that we would sometimes stop at the museum when we were on vacation and we'd buy little souvenirs at the store. In 1992, when I was in Nicaragua, I made a retreat with other North Americans and European folks who were living and working in the country. We had gathered to study together some materials had been published to mark the 500 years 
since Columbus landed in what he called the New World. Being in Nicaragua, we were compelled to study and read and talk about what had happened and continues to happen to the people, not only of Nicaragua, but in the many lands throughout South America, Mexico, and North America. The Contra War, financed by the U.S., had recently ended when Violeta Chamorro, a Democratic president supported by the U.S., was elected in Nicaragua. Knowing this drove our desire to understand the history. We were working with the people ravaged by the Contra War that was waged by the United States and its allies, professing to be fighting for democracy, which we quickly learned meant that transnational companies could come in freely to establish sweatshops, to ravish the forest, to send the, the wood north, to forcibly take lands from the peasants, and so many more atrocities. The exploit of history was centuries old and current. It was at this retreat that I had a profound recognition of who I was, of what part of history I was directly related to. My grandparents and great-grandparents and their descendants were farmers and laborers who worked hard and had many struggles. Good people who went to church and who cared for and about their neighbors. Here I was with my Franciscan community and all these others on retreat who were there to support the Nicaraguan people in their struggle to reclaim the lands taken from them by Somoza and his allies. And here I am reading about the people who were forcibly removed from the very lands my family farmed and vacationed on. As we were reading and discussing, all of a sudden, I felt this visceral sense of wanting to strip myself, to tear my garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. I had never used or thought of those words before, but they were in my mind like a command from my depths at the moment of a painful recognition of who I was as a descendant of European settlers. I was curious of the context of these words as they so described what I felt in that moment. In looking them up, I learned that for the Hebrew people, the tearing of garments was a way of expressing great grief and sorrow. Sackcloth and ashes were put on to show distress, humility, desperation, and protest. Such was Mordecai's distress when he learned of the plan to annihilate the Jews. In the book of Esther, chapter 4, it reads, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, 
he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud, bitter cry. I don't remember if I cried, but there was a loud and deep cry inside that feels as piercing today as it did then. I can't unsee or unacknowledge what I know now. Is history trapped by ignorance and an unwillingness to understand painful realities and our place in them? Is it freed when we acknowledge that we live with structural and economic inequities and accept responsibility for the present and future as well as for the past? To free trapped history and to do the work of healing and reparation, I first must acknowledge the wrongdoing and do the work of repair. I need to keep reading and listening, for the wrongdoings are over centuries and being done yet today, and it is still close to home, land that belongs to the Native American people in Minnesota and many other places is still being disputed in the courts. My niece, who is married to an Ojibwe man, has a daughter who is harassed in school because her skin is darker than her classmates. The repairs are extensive and ongoing. It is not someone else's responsibility. It is mine. It is ours. And as we will hear in our reading today, we can never declare that the work is over. In recognition of the sovereign rights of the Ohlone peoples, on whose land our church building stands, we are donating this morning's offering to the Segorate Land Trust, which facilitates the return of native land to native people we urge you to prayerfully consider supporting this Bay Area organization. You can give online by pressing the donation button in the order of service or on our website. A link is also in the video description and in the chat. In the payment portal, please give by using the special offerings line. We thank you for your generosity. Oh. 
Our reading this morning is titled Old House. It's a reading from the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. America is an old house. We can never declare the work over. Wind, flood, drought, and human upheavals batter a structure that is already fighting whatever flaws were left unattended in the original foundation. When you live in an old house, you may not want to go into the basement after a storm 
to see what the rains have wrought. Choose not to look, however, at your own peril. The owner of an old house knows that whatever you are ignoring will never go away. Whatever is lurking will fester whether you choose to look or not. Ignorance is no protection from the consequences of inaction. Whatever you are wishing, will not, wishing away will not at you until you gather the courage to face what you would rather not see. We in the developed world are like homeowners who inherited a house on a piece of land that is beautiful on the outside but whose soil is unstable loam and rock, heaving and contracting over generations. Cracks patched, but the deeper ruptures waved away for decades, centuries even. Many people may rightly say, I had nothing to do with how this all started. I have nothing to do with the sins of the past. My ancestors never attacked indigenous people, never owned slaves. And yes, not one of us was here when this house was built. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it. But here we are the current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or joists, but they are ours to deal with now. Oh. 
Thank you, Alex Tate, for this beautiful music, especially the song you just sang from the Gullah people, an African-American community that settled in coastal South Carolina, not far from the home of my white ancestors. Wow, it's good to be back in this sanctuary. 
and to be imagining you who are joining us today sitting in these pews. I've not been here since I left for retirement after serving as pastoral care minister. That was only two years ago, but doesn't it seem like a lifetime? I hope you have been safe these many months. And I wonder, how did you spend the pandemic? Of course, we're not there yet where we can speak in past tense about the pandemic. But I mean, how did you spend the time when so many of us were holed up inside during what we came to call lockdown? Well, I had pretty good energy at the beginning. I dragged trunks out of a storage closet, cut up all my old t-shirts, and sent them off to have a quilt made. It was incredibly satisfying. And now I get to sleep every night under a blanket of my history, a restaurant I loved in New Orleans, a poem by Langston Hughes, the San Francisco Marathon I ran in a jillion years ago. Also, a depiction of the rose window from this sanctuary <clears throat> cut from a sweatshirt I was given during my ministerial internship here. Well, next out of the trunks were old photographs and documents. And I found a forgotten picture of my grandmother, young, posed with seven of her siblings on the porch of their family home in Greenville, South Carolina, sometime around the turn of the last century. That photo took me back to another front porch in Brunswick, Georgia, where as a small girl, I loved to sit with that dear grandmother shelling butter beans. And then my dive into history took a deeper turn at the request of my daughter. She was spending her pandemic looking forward to the birth of her first child. Can I show you a picture of my beautiful grandbaby? Oh, well, maybe later. Anyway, Mayanna's pregnancy moved her to come to me with an earnest request. As she brought new life into the world, she wanted to know for sure. Were there enslavers in our family tree? Am I, is she, would the child who is coming be descended from people who believed in and practiced a right to own other human beings? Well, possibly, even maybe probably, had always been enough knowing for me. Because aren't we all responsible anyway? All white people in this country, I mean. Even the ancestors who came here after chattel slavery ended, we all are part of a country where white people benefit from the systems put into place by slavery. Aren't we all, therefore, responsible for dismantling those systems? 
Well, I believe this anyway, and I've done my small best to live by it. But what that means in reality is that there have been times I've focused on that work and other times when I've been able to ignore it. Through much of my life, race has not been a daily concern of mine, a luxury I have because I'm white. Anyway, I argued with my daughter a bit. Isn't it possible that our acknowledging that we're descendants of enslavers, if we find that to be true, would let others off the hook? But here is my beautiful pregnant daughter asking for knowledge. Of course, I would try. Well, it took about 10 minutes on one of the genealogy web websites to come up with records of the 1860 census and attached property records of my fourth great-grandfather. His name appeared beside, beside 120 lines, 120. that detailed not names of people, but designations, male or female, age, value, each line denoting a human being in whom he claimed ownership. And this, of course, was just the beginning. So when I tell this story, people often ask, how did it feel to discover that? And the last thing I want to do in a story about the history of chattel slavery is center the feelings of a white descendant of enslavers, which would be me. But of course, I am the center of this story. It's my story. So I'll say this. The undeniable knowing affected me in ways I hadn't expected and set me on a journey that is still unfolding and that I believe will continue to unfold for the rest of my days. As Carmen said, I can't unknow this either. It changed me. It hasn't been smooth. I'd like to report progress, or at least a clear path, but actually what it feels like a lot, what it, it feels like a lot of mucking about and not knowing what to do next. I joined an organization called Coming to the Table, which you may have heard of, a former community minister here, Dave Petit of Blessed Memory, was active in this organization from near the time of its founding 15 years ago. This summer's national gathering of coming to the table <clears throat> brought, <clears throat> this summer's national gathering brought together several hundred descendants <clears throat> of enslaved persons and descendants of enslavers to learn and work together. People who have been on this path a lot longer than I shared how genealogical research 
can uncover life-giving information for descendants of enslaved persons for whom it might be otherwise difficult to discover their lineage. No names, remember, were recorded in those government records. I've also learned the way different people are approaching the delicate work of repair, which some call reparations. Now there are people who will stop listening as soon as you say that word. Slavery was so long ago, they might say, it has nothing to do with me. But you know, it wasn't so long ago. A small digression here into mathematics. Recently, I encountered an interesting application of the laws of probability. With climate change and all, people have been asking how long it might be before human beings go extinct. Well, I won't take you through the calculations. I don't understand them anyway. But the conclusion, the probability model says that we humans have between 5,000 and 7.8 million more years to muck up or repair the planet. Even at the lowest likely possibility, that makes slavery seem like yesterday. End of mathematical digression. But some will say there's no way to calculate what reparations should be for slavery. It can't be done. I'm sorry, but this is nonsense. The answer to how is yes. As the community action theorist Peter Block put it, we should be having the conversation about how, not about if. An honest conversation in this nation about how we might make repair for inequality that traces back to the white colonialist project of stealing people's land and people's labor would be a good place to start to unwind the culture wars raging now about how we teach our history. But I don't want to get lost in these arguments. I want to talk about repair as a spiritual project, a spiritual practice. I know I can't fix all that's wrong. What I can do is work to fix myself and hope that through repairing myself and moving toward repair in any circles of my influence, a little pain in the world can be eased. I learned that working with Kay Jorgensen and Carmen Barsotti at the Faithful Fools, that personal and social change go hand in hand, have to. Tony Renee Battle, one of the leaders of the local group of Coming to the Table, told another Unitarian Universalist congregation recently that reparation should be a spiritual practice. She urged white people to keep a reparations journal the way some keep a gratitude journal. So, 
repair as a spiritual project, what would be in that reparations journal? What does it look like? Well, a lot of different things, actually. I read a lot, working to untangle evil notions that were intentionally put into me by the mother who loved me. I pray a lot, learning to live with that, and with the reality that the grandmother I loved loved people who were enslavers. Repair as a spiritual project can look like gathering companions who meet regularly to support each other in anti-racist practice. And I want to give a little shout out here to the six of my white Rossmore neighbors who have been meeting faithfully twice a month for more than a year now to help each other live authentically anti-racist lives. Y'all are my thought and heart partners in this work, and I thank you. Repair as spiritual practice can look like going to demonstrations and showing up for government meetings. It can look like reaching out to your white family members to have hard conversations. When Carmen and I were planning this service, we both mentioned the deadening effect of silence. Silence about these histories within the family. White silence. One of my Georgia cousins told me that none of our common ancestors could possibly have been enslavers because they were all Methodist ministers and Methodists did not permit their clergy to own enslaved. Well, that was just a few days before I found the records of Reverend Henry Davis Green, Methodist minister, from whom that cousin and I are both descended. For those who have money, reparations as spiritual practice might look like giving some away to black-owned organizations and looking for personal connections, even from a media distance, with the people in charge of the project. It could look like paying an annual land tax contribution to Segorate, which works to put land back into the hands of people indigenous to this area, the organization that will receive today's, donate, today's plate offering and there's still time to add to it online, if you're so inclined. And of course, it looks like writing letters to Congress urging the advancement of H.R. 40, the bill that would establish a commission to study reparations at the national level, the collective level, so we might begin to have this conversation on a national level and maybe begin to reconcile ourselves to the realities of our common history. There's so much more to say about that, but it's got to be another sermon. I am deeply respectful of the way Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 
project team at the New York Times have drawn connections between slavery and the harsh realities of capitalism that all of us live under today. All of us. Reading and listening to those articles and podcasts with an open mind and heart, that for me was an occasion of spiritual awakening. My daughter and I are in an ongoing conversation about what might, why, what might make sense in terms of reparative work more directly focused toward people descended from those who were enslaved by our ancestors. Moving in this direction is the most delicate of all. The last thing we want is to cause more harm. It's messy, and it will never be done, and any sense of accomplishment is illusory. But I have learned that perfection is a product of what black theologian Christina Cleveland calls the white colonialist imagination. And I think a hunger for accomplishment is cut from that cloth too. <clears throat> the important thing is to keep moving, even when I don't know how to do it. The important thing is to keep saying yes to the work. There's no goal of fixing it. What I want is to point myself toward leaving a better world for my grandchildren. I want to be a good ancestor whose example they would want to build on. It takes spiritual fortitude. So I try to go to the gym, spiritually speaking, every day. Sometimes the gym looks like dancing or like singing. Let's go there now. Let's sing number 151, I Wish I Knew How. Words and music are in your order of service. And wherever you are watching this, you can get up and dance. Thank you. 
today, I want to invite all our viewers to virtual coffee hour, which will start immediately following the postlude. A link is available in the video description, order of service, and is also posted in the chat. Now in our comings and our goings, in our dancing and our singing, in our learning and our sharing, in our weeping and our working to repair the wrongs of generations, let us remember we do not walk alone. May we lean on one another as we lean into a vision of a future transformed by care for one another. May we lean into the greater love that holds us all, a love that will never let us go. Go in peace. Amen. Like the children that
this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.